A note before we start. This episode contains offensive language, including racial slurs. From the New York Times, I'm Charles Duhigg, and this is Change Agent. Our caller this week would like to remain anonymous, so we'll call him M. So like a few weeks ago, I was in a car with a couple of my friends at a red light, and they were talking about this car that we were sitting next to, uh-huh. and there was a black family in there, and uh, my friends just started like just spouting off like, oh, I bet they have those kids to get more government checks. I look at this family. Whoa. Like, literally, that's what they said. Wow. And uh, it just, it made me really uncomfortable. These are two friends of yours? Uh, yeah. I mean, one of them's definitely a friend. The other one's friend of a friend kind of thing, but... uh, But the one who's definitely a friend, what did you say to him when he said that? I was just like, I don't know, I just kind of, I was just like, why why do you feel a need to say that? That's that's like, not funny at all. And what did he say? Did did he apologize, or what did he say? He's like, I was joking, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, it's like, I'm the... I'm the jerk for saying that's not okay to say, basically. Em is a young guy in his early 20s, and he just recently graduated from college and moved to a new city to take a job. We talked on the phone for a while, and he told me he's pretty shy, and he has trouble making friends. Um, I'm not that good at social stuff, and it's very easy to just kind of find yourself isolated. Uh, But pretty quickly after moving to the city, Em meets this one guy, and they really hit it off. He's much more of an extroverted guy, and so he always invites me to do things, like watch games together, you know, like NBA or football games, or, you know, kind of go to bars kind of thing. As they get more comfortable with each other, though, this friend, he starts saying things that are pretty offensive. He's very, um, I don't know, I guess abrasive with his humor, using the N-word and just like, like it's nothing, like there's no sting to it or at all. It's just like, whoa, there it goes. Um I actually, I told him about my mother, who is a, who's a lesbian and an out one, and, and uh-huh. kind of how that factored into this big divorce and custody battle over us as kids. And uh, all of my, like, teachers and family friends and stuff were all kind of dragged into it as character witnesses for my parents and stuff. Hmm. And almost all of them were on my dad's side. Oh, wow. And he, he ended up winning. I mean, my mom had PTSD after that custody battle. She has crazy anxiety issues. So I've kind of seen the damage that can be done because of that. And so, I don't know, I guess that allows me to kind of empathize with other things that I don't have as much background with. Right. Um, so let me ask you this. Why not just go find other friends? Yeah, well, um, he actually is a genuinely good friend. He um, He's always that guy I can kind of count on to help me out, need a ride to the airport, need help moving, car issues, anything like that. He's always the kind of guy who will call you if you haven't talked to him in a couple of weeks. Um, so, so what is it that you actually want? I guess what I want is, I guess, some advice of how to kind of take on this kind of conversation with my friend. Um, I want him to be able to acknowledge that maybe the place that those jokes are coming from is not okay, even if they are just joke. And I feel like we're at a place where where this kind of difficult conversation can happen. I don't know if I can utilize that to chip away at his racism. I figure it's worth a try 
uh, at least. Okay. There are a couple of big questions here. Can we get M's friend to not be racist? Realistically, probably not. But what we can do is help M figure out how to begin a conversation with his friend about racism. A conversation that could help change his mind. And we found a guy who's really good at changing people's minds in the most extreme circumstances. In fact, he developed a method to get people out of cults. And bear with us, because we know that being in a cult and being racist are two very different things. But after this story, we're going to go back to M. And he's going to use this method to talk with his friend. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I think I know this connection. Look, Bath is a city in England, Sandwich is a city in England, Reading is a city in England, and I'm going to guess Derby is a city in England. I started Wordle 194 days ago, and I haven't missed a day. The New York Times Games app has all the games right there. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. I always have to get genius. I've seen you yell at it and say, that (laughs) should be a word. Totally should be a word. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. At this point, I'm probably more consistent with doing the crossword than brushing my teeth. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. When I have to look up a clue to help me, I'm learning something new. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. We're back. Do you need Wi-Fi or no? And reporter Annie Brown is going to tell us a story that starts with some old recordings. I haven't listened to that in 20 years. I'm sitting with a therapist named Steve Hassan. Sure. We're checking to see how the mic works, and I'm checking to see if I can talk, which I think I can talk. And the tapes we're listening to are from a counseling session he did back in 1997. Everything else we're going to do. Okay. With a man named Dick Jocelyn, who'd been in a cult for 15 years. One of the most extreme mind control cults I've ever come across. Steve has had this kind of conversation hundreds of times. In fact, he pioneered a new method for drawing people out of cults. You have to decide if you, if you want to go back, if you want to stay out, what, just what you want to do with your life. But before Steve got really good at getting people out of cults, he was in one himself. And that story starts back in the 70s. When the counterculture movement gave way to some more radical mind control groups. Religious cults have become a phenomenon in this country. They exist in dozens of varieties. There was the Manson family, and Jim Jones was gaining a big following. They completely control the lives of their members. But Steve Hassan was just a creative writing major with a ponytail. And he just got dumped. Uh, My girlfriend over the winter break said, I don't want to see you anymore. And I remember being in the cafeteria at Queens College, and I was feeling really down. And these three smiling women approached me and said, can we sit at your table? They told him they were part of a student group. They just were so interested in me, and they said, we really want to see you again. And I'm thinking, maybe I could ask one of the three out. 
And they said, well, actually, we're having a talk tonight over at our center, and would you like to come? I, I do remember asking them, are you part of some religious group? And they said, oh, no, not at all. But they basically lied their faces off. The women were not a part of a student group. In fact, they weren't even students. They were members of the Unification Church, sometimes called the Moonies. The Reverend Sun the Young Moon was accused of controlling the minds of young people creating so-called Moonies. The longer I stayed in that environment, the more it got inside of my head. Current church members don't like being called Moonies, and they say it's not a cult at all. But Steve says it is. I was asked by the cults to drop out of Queens College, to surrender everything, my money, my bank account. I slept three to four hours a night and worked seven days a week for no pay. Steve cut off all contact with his family. He got really good at recruiting new members. And after a while, he says Moon commended him for being a model student. I was literally at a meeting where I was asked to think about what country I wanted to be in charge of when we took over the world. Was, like which country of all the countries? You could choose one? Uh, that's what I was told. So I was thinking I could have my own continent and choose Australia. <laughs> I know, I was 21 years old. And then... About two years into his time with the group, he was driving on a recruitment trip. He hadn't slept in three days. I woke up as I was driving at about 80 miles an hour into the back of a tractor trailer truck. And I remember being brought into the ambulance and them saying, you know, it's a miracle that you're alive. But then I was in the hospital, away from the group, sleeping and eating. And after about a week or so, I just had this thought that I should call my sister Thea. And I called her up and she said, I miss you. And you know, you have a, a nephew and I want him to know his Uncle Stevie. And I said, if you promise not to tell the folks, I think I can arrange a visit. And she broke her word and told my family. <laughs> and they hired a number of deprogrammers and were waiting to deprogram me. Tonight we begin a special report on a new phenomenon. It's called deprogramming, an attempt to force religious cultists to renounce their beliefs. Deprogramming was one of the only options families had if they wanted to get their kid out of a cult. Steve's family took him against his will to a remote location. They sat him in a room and took away his crutches so he couldn't leave. And for five days, four men bashed the Moonies and tried to force Steve to change his mind. It happened for me on the last day of my deprogramming. They showed him evidence of Moon lying. I had the first time in two and a half years a conscious doubt. And my first thought was, what a snake, what a liar. And I started to cry, and I kept crying. Steve went back to his family. I felt so guilty for having become a Moon leader and recruiting so many people in that I felt like I wanted to help as many people as I could. So Steve learned the methods himself. And I did forcible deprogramming for the first year after I got out. But deprogramming in general was imploding. All over the country, deprogrammers were getting sued and arrested for kidnapping. Plus, the methods Steve was learning just didn't sit right with him. 
one of his fellow deprogrammers, had this analogy for it. He said, the mind is like a pot of beans, Steve, and you want to turn the heat up really high and put the lid on till it blows off. And I don't think the mind is a pot of beans. That's also not how you cook a pot of beans. I just wanted nothing to do with that kind of pain and suffering. So two years after I exited the Moonies, I said, you know, I think no one should do deprogramming. Like, it's wrong, and we should do a softer, gentler approach. So Steve went back to school. He studied psychology and spent a lot of time thinking about what he'd been through, how his sister Thea was a big part of his leaving the cult. She was literally the only person that didn't try to argue me out of it or say judgmental things. She would always be like, this doesn't make sense to me. Like, help me understand. This insight about Thea became the foundation of Steve's new method. Instead of the pot of beans, Steve came up with another metaphor. The person in the cult is in a burning house and they have blindfolds on, and they're listening to music, and they're dancing, they're waltzing around to this music. Your instinct is to take a bullhorn and go, Yo, you're in a burning building. Get out, get out. Uh, uh, uh. But they can't hear you. Instead, you have to go into the house. You want to find their rhythm. You want to, uh, to get in there and, and waltz with them. But make note where the exits are and that sometimes you have to go deeper into the burning house before you can turn around and go towards the door. Steve found this softer approach was just more effective. People who had been impossible to reach were suddenly listening and engaged. So he started training other people writing articles and books. And then something happened that really tested his method. 39 members of Heaven's Gate, a bizarre cult obsessed with UFOs. This is from The Jenny Jones Show, a daytime talk show that started in the 90s. The cult members deliberately followed a recipe for death, swallowing deadly drug-laced applesauce with vodka. A week before this show, in 1997, 39 members of Heaven's Gate laid down in bunk beds wearing black Nikes and covered themselves with purple cloth. It was the largest mass suicide in U.S. history. Steve was watching this show at home. Someone was on it as a, as a defender. And this is when he saw Dick Jocelyn for the first time. Our first guest, Dick Jocelyn, was a member of Heaven's Gate for Dick, what, almost 15 years? For 15 years. <laughs> first of all, you were probably one of the... And I was very curious what this person had to say. And you respected and loved this man. I still love him. You still I do? I love all those people. He was talking as if he was still programmed. Which brings me to my question about your shoes, if you don't mind my asking <laughs> about your shoes. How about these today? Did you? Dick is wearing the same black Nikes they killed themselves in. I bought them as a show of support for these loved ones. And I'm listening to this man talking. And I was about ready to say, why didn't I go with them? And I'm thinking, oh my goodness. He's going to kill himself. Steve wasn't the only one thinking that. 
That week, Dick was on a lot of TV shows, defending his friends in the cult. And a producer from one of those shows called Steve. Saying we were worried for him. You know, could you help? I said, if he's willing to come to Boston, I'll do it for free. So it's Monday, Memorial Day. And you flew up yesterday from Tampa. Yes. Dick did come to Boston for three days. Which brings us back to those tapes that Steve and I are listening to. The counseling is, is pretty unique. You don't usually get to see inside the therapist-patient interaction. But Steve and Dick decided to tape their conversations for a documentary that was never made. And in these tapes, you can hear Steve's softer approach to deprogramming in action. He and Dick actually sound a lot alike, but here's Dick. And, of course, my role on TV has been essentially that of a defender of the group against the perception of them as extreme brainwashed dumb, because I know that's wrong. Three of Steve's strategies really stand out as he's working with Dick. The first one, Steve validates Dick. I think you were 100% right to be defensive and angry the public and the media saying, oh, these people were kooks. This is actually a little tricky because you want to validate the person, but not their beliefs. I think you are 100% justified in saying you're wrong. These people are lovely, wonderful human beings. And the second strategy is to get genuinely curious. So when Dick says... And there's a part of me that says, Mm -hmm. there are certain things that I got out of that that were good. Mm -hmm. Steve just asks a question. Tell me what was good. I'm very interested to know. And listens. Well, I learned a lot of things. We had a lot of time to study. So I learned about astrology. I learned how to do astrology charts. Mm -hmm. I did a lot of cooking and became a very good um, But, um, you know, then I immediately go back to, but how much of the time I spent just churning, feeling I wish I were doing something else. Mm. And once Dick softens, Steve spends hours educating him about how mind control works. How a cult will make you feel like you're in control when really you've been manipulated. So when Dick pushes back... I mean, nobody sat me down and force-fed any of this. I chose to sit there and listen to them. Steve uses the third strategy. I had a similar experience in terms of getting involved with the Moonies. He doesn't try and correct Dick. Instead, he tells a story about himself. Yes, I did talk with them. I did agree to listen to a lecture. I didn't know there was this whole agenda. I didn't realize that the goal was to get me to drop out of school and quit my job and donate my bank account. And so I could say, you chose this freely. But if I knew then what I know now, I would have acted differently. Well, and I know that's true with me, too. I mean, I... Up until this moment, if you had said, did you, you know, I would have defended the fact that I chose this. It's, you're right, it's the illusion of choice. And over the three-day session, Steve starts to see Dick change. Dick's coming out of it. Things, I am so grateful, feeling very clear that it's the beginning of a, you know, a, a recovery process. Mm-hmm. <sighs> but then... On the last hour of the last day, something comes up that throws everything off. I need to say that I am very concerned for you. 
By this point, Dick had revealed to Steve that he's HIV positive. Dick said he believes the connection between HIV and AIDS isn't real, that it's a conspiracy. And Steve tries to talk to him about it before their time is up. But those three methods he developed, the validation, getting curious, and personal stories, he just stops using them. Because I question the legitimacy of the claims of these people who are saying it doesn't exist, it's not a virus, it's this conspiracy. That's a big claim, and it requires big proof. Oh, I have it. And it it does exist. My concern? Because I have tested HIV positive, Mm -hmm. so it's not like I'm playing a game with this. Right. And that's one reason why I feel compelled to talk with you about this, because you were in a cult where one of the beliefs that was programmed is, if you believe it, it is so? No. No, he was saying, if you believe it, then it's your reality. Well... Which, if you think about it, is like... It's delusional. And And they argue like this for a little while, until finally Steve says... See, I feel like I'm out of my realm of knowledge, and I don't want to... Well, with all due love and respect, in a sense, you are. So, this feels like a moment to me. It's like very tense. This feels like the maybe the most difficult moments in the in the interview. Hmm. What 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 do you think about this? Oh, uh, I hadn't thought about this. I had not remembered this part. I had never met anybody who espoused that before. It was a jolt. Like, what do I do with this? It makes me sad to hear this. And the rest of it seems so successful. Like, it seems like it really did what it was intending. I felt so, and he felt so. Why? Like, what went wrong here? As I'm thinking about it, it's just that it's paradoxical that when the stakes are the highest, we often have the least resourcefulness. So in this moment, you're becoming a version of yourself that you were before you figured all this stuff out. Yeah, I was becoming a, a, just a real person who cared about another person and whose professional resources went out the, the door. After this exchange, Steve and Dick wrapped up and Dick flew back to Florida. And the thing is, the sessions really helped Dick. He stayed out of the cult and moved out of his parents' house. But he never got treatment for HIV. Three years later, on January 8, 2000, Dick Jocelyn died of complications from AIDS. Reporter Annie Brown. After the break, we'll go back to M, and we'll see if we can help him use some of Steve's methods to have a hard conversation with his friend. We're back with our caller M. Hello, hey, welcome, hey, Charles. Charles, nice, nice to meet you. Come on in, Annie. Who's nice about to, to have you. his friend over for a hard conversation? Yeah, about the offensive things he says. Should we take our shoes off? Oh, no, it doesn't matter. I've just... We're in M's apartment, 
The carpet has just been vacuumed, and there's a spread on the table. But before Em's friend gets here, we talk about what we learn from Annie's story on deprogramming. So let's, let's talk about exactly what the tools are that you're going to use. The, the three tools are validating the person as a human. Another tool is the curiosity factor. And the third thing that was really big was kind of being vulnerable and telling a personal story. I think that's really well put. Yeah. As we sit at the kitchen table, I notice Em's neck and chest are getting red and splotchy. He's pulling out his shirt and he's sweating. Why are you nervous? I don't know. It's a deep and sensitive issue. It's a, I don't have a ton of friends. And so my opinion of worst case scenario is it goes fine here. And then it's just never the same between us anymore. It's just, he's probably pissed off at me that I shed him in this light. Now, Em's friend knows that he's coming over to have a hard conversation with Em, and he knows that we're going to be there taping it. But he doesn't know what the conversation's about. And then... Hey, Charles. What's going really on? Nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you, yeah. too. How you doing? How's the trip down? He's here. Uh, yesterday was actually National Puppy Day. Oh, yeah? Yes. What kind of dog you got? I have a miniature golden doodle. Em's friend sits on one side Let's of the table, it. and Em is on the other side. He's Thank fiddling you. with a strawberry. All right, I guess I'll take it away from right. here. First off, I don't know. You're, you're like a good friend of mine here. In I don't have, you know, a whole lot of friends. I, you know me well enough at this point that. Yeah. And it's just like kind of throughout our time, it's just been a really interesting kind of dynamic because we do have such crazy different perspectives. But like, despite that, like it, it, it kind of, it adds to us hanging out, I think. PB and J. Exactly. Yeah. M's validating his friend. Um, that's the first step of the plan. I don't know. You're, you're just a good friend. And so I guess I just kind of want to start off with that as like, that's the reason you're here is because I view you kind of that way. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, and so, and so I'm trying to keep this thing on track. Sorry. Um, no, that's great. Help me out, Charles. <laughs> you yeah. I need Go some, straight to it. I need some direction. Um, Go straight to okay, it. Okay. All right. I will. One one thing that we differ on a lot uh-huh. is, is like racial kind of stuff, you know? Right. And, and sometimes, and like, you know, your personality, you kind of, you, you kind of troll a little bit, you right. know, you'll say something just to kind of look over and say it. Well, my favorite thing to do, I love to argue from the opposing stance. And so that's where a lot of stuff comes from. You also from. like the shock value too. It though. does. You, you kind of go do. further just yeah. to do that, you know? That, it's true. I, I'm a, I'm a button pusher for sure. Right. But I just kind of like want to understand a little bit more like, Okay. I don't know, like your background, I guess, and like where, where like maybe some of those things come from. Um, this is the second step of the plan, showing that you're curious. Um, so one thing, you know, I did grow up in a small town in Mississippi. I never knew my dad. My mom raised four kids. She wouldn't have been able to do it without my grandfather. Greatest man I've ever known. You know. He is racist. The N-word was used quite frequently. And it's a habit I need to get out of. And actually, since I've been around you, I have used it less. It, I, I will have say, you I, noticed? I, I've noticed that. So I, I support is that. Is that a positive impact you've had on me? Because I, I know it does bother you. Well, but but I hope, I hope that it's not just because it's going to bother yeah. me. You know, I, it, well, used yeah. in a private setting. 
what does one guy sitting in the living room, shall see in word maybe, what does that affect another guy 10 miles down the road? Right. I, I don't know. I'm not. I don't and know. I, in, in no way I'm not trying to defend it. Sure, sure, sure. Defend it or anything. I'm just saying, you know, unless I'm in this guy's face shouting it. That's where the line why, is. Why yeah. does it? Why does it affect him? I think that it's bigger than just the setting that you're in. I don't know. You know a decent amount about me and kind of some of the stuff I've been through with like, you know, my parents and they they divorced when I was in kindergarten. So this is the third strategy, the personal story. M talks about the custody battle that happened after his mom came out. And his friend is listening close. He opens another beer. So everyone like in your community pretty much like testified against your mom? My mom could not get a witness she had a, she had one witness and she had to subpoena that witness and um she dealt with ptsd for like years after this um i have like a really potent understanding and experience of like how how much like i guess words matter and like how much damage i guess that can do um, right you're right that's tough but uh yeah i just it's it's hard for me to make that connect. What about calling a gay person a f***? What about that? You know, not saying that I don't, you know, use it. Because I have. Yeah, I, I guess I can't even remember the last time I ever... I don't, I don't really use that word too often. So so why, so why not that one? Why does that one not roll off the tongue? Like maybe an N-word might. I think that... Uh, I guess it just doesn't really. I guess the answer. I don't use the word f- that often. Um. Because I believe my uh, my mom is gay. You know, I don't use that word. Just because I know that it, that would be insulting, um, and that that is a group a, of hers, and that that is essentially the worst thing you could say about that group of people, right? Right? Yeah. Even if you're in a closed room by yourself. So right now, your my mom's a two thousand miles away. Your mom's however many hundred miles away. You still don't want to say that word, though, right? Like, do you see any kind of parallels between them? I guess. Yeah, I see it. Yeah, I mean, you make a you make a valuable point there, yeah. You know, and I just think that's just terrible what happened with your mom. You know, it's uh, when you kind of lay out why you use something, you know, opposed to uh, you know your ninety two year old grandfather, then you connect it to your uh, homosexual mother. I've just never had anyone make that connection, I guess. It's like that word is parallel to this word. It does kind of make sense. Eventually, the conversation slows. Em and his friend push away from the table. All right, here we go. And then they stand up and they hug. Oh, boy. Good job, dude. I appreciate you coming over. Oh, it was a good talk, man. Dude. When M first reached out to me, he worried that if he brought these things up with his friend, that it might ruin the friendship. 
But when I followed up with him a month later, he told me that the day after they talked, his friend came over again. They hung out and finished off the snacks. M told me it's too early to say if their conversation made his friends stop using the N-word. You know, it's not like a magic wand. You know, it's there's still issues that go on, but just the fact that you've able, been able to kind of break that ice and actually have direct conversation about the issue, it's definitely something I look forward to doing again. Agent is produced by Annie Brown and Alexandra Lee Young and hosted by Charles Duhigg. Wendy Dore edited the show with Larissa Anderson, who's also the managing producer. Lisa Tobin is our executive producer, and Samantha Hennig is our editorial director. Eddie Cooper composed our theme song, and Andrew Dunn and Brad Fisher engineered this episode. Special thanks to Sam Dolnick, Andy Mills, Zachary Wichter, and Pierre Antoine Louis. 